Join us as we finish up the Gospel of Mark, and you get to find out why you can drink poison and hold snakes. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Reminded for you all to like, subscribe, comment, that helps the gospel go out. And uh, Brandon, what are we talking about today? Well, if you've gotten this far, do not drink poison, do not handle venomous snakes, okay? So just, if you didn't get this far, <laughs> then you're, you're probably dead. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Very sorry about that. Yeah, is that, um, our, uh, is that our legal disclosure? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Legally speaking, yeah. do not do these things. Um, but this is a confusing ending to the Gospel of Mark. The ending draws the most attention, probably. So we're going to address that. Um, we're going to sum up the the passion narrative, of mm-hmm. course, and we'll see how these these big themes from Mark are wrapped together yep. into a nice little bow. And then we're going to ask what this ending means for us. Cool. Which I think, I, I really like the ending. I think it's a really fascinating ending. Yeah. If you understand it correctly. So um, so let's talk first about that ending. I mean, what we've, well, I should say first, the big themes of the Gospel of Mark, what why he's writing mm-hmm. have to do with identifying who Jesus is right. and how we can follow him. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So that's mm-hmm. the themes, we've, the main two themes we've been seeing building, and we're going to see them come to a fulfillment today. But let's talk about the ending in terms of there's kind of two different endings here. So you may have noticed as you were reading, um, hopefully you've read through the end of end of Mark. I don't know exactly what when the reading schedule, uh, when it gets there, but you'll notice it stands out, at least in my Bible and probably most Bibles, there's a break in the, the paragraph there and there's an inserted comment in big brackets. And mine says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. So mm-hmm. if you have the ESV, it's going to say that. I think most good versions do. Right. Um, so what what's going on there? It, so the question is, is the ending of Mark original to the Gospel of Mark, or was it added later? Right. That's the question. Now, there's so much to consider here, and just even me asking that question for a lot of Christians would freak them out, right? Mm-hmm. The Bible is God's word. It's without error. How could we even entertain that thought? Because mm-hmm. I am going to entertain it. So uh, what does that mean? Well, what we say when we say the word of God is inerrant is we're saying it's inerrant in its original manuscripts. Yeah. So the original, um, what the apostles wrote down was inerrant. People, as it was copied, sometimes would add in errors, sometimes to their own fault, mm-hmm. but sometimes intentionally, okay? Now, can we depend upon the Word of God? 100%, absolutely. Right. We, we can pinpoint, because of the science of textual criticism, which is essentially getting all the text together and comparing them and seeing where errors might have come in, all that sort of stuff. So there are thousands of manuscripts. You can do this to a very accurate degree with the New Testament mm-hmm. and the Old Testament. Um, so you can see the the specific areas where there's lack of clarity, and that amounts to one to two percent. And every like of of verses, right? Not of not of words, but like I mean, very small percentage of verses. And those the errors in them are things that do not affect primary doctrines of the faith. Like yeah. they're not. They're like, should there be an and here or not? Like very m- minuscule things typically. Right. But there are a couple of big uh, sections that are questionable, mm-hmm. really two primarily. So John chapter 8, we'll look at that when we get there, and then the end of the Gospel of Mark. These are the two biggest 
questionable pieces. Right. So what could have happened, well, I'll say what I do think happened is that somebody added this section in at a later date in order to fix what they saw as a problem with the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty clear as you read this ending in verse 8 that it kind of leaves you hanging. Right. So maybe someone said, we got to add some details in to smooth this out to make it more like Matthew and Luke, mm-hmm. the other synoptics. So that's probably what happened. But as we piece together these different texts, these different manuscripts, we can look at them, we compare them, we say, hey, this this word or this portion of this verse only appears later. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like it was added in. So there's a lot of rules to that. There's a lot of, you know, it's a lifelong study you could do. So I'm not going to try to go through everything with that. But just to say that's the big idea here. Mm-hmm. When we look at the different texts, uh, what do we see as patterns? Now, you might think when you hear different manuscripts, you might think that this was sort of like a chain, like the game telephone, right? So Mark wrote his gospel then someone copied that gospel, then someone else copied that, and so on. That's not really true. So what happened in the transmission of these texts is actually there develops families of texts. So someone, you know, a handful of people copied that original gospel of Mark, and then those are distributed to different areas geographically. And then in those regions, they start to copy that version. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is certain errors will creep into different families of texts. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is you can get, based upon how old something is, uh, the format which it was written, and which family it belongs to, you begin to trace where errors came in. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing how they can do this. Yeah. So not to get you know super technical with that, but just to say there's actually a way to study this and to look at this. Mm-hmm. Now, the earliest manuscripts, as we just said, don't include the end of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. So there's a, quite a few reasons why I would say we should say, even though I know this is in your English Bible, this is not actually original to the gospel. Okay. Yeah, and uh, just a small point on yeah. you know textual criticism and the, the whole process of that. I think like seeing the section, like at first for some people, like you said, would cause doubts. Like, can we trust God's word? But I think after you understand what's going on here, you, it actually should build up confidence. Yeah. Uh, that we have in the rest of Scripture, you know, because yeah, an atheist so. will come along and say they think of it in that sort of that telephone game, right? It's like someone copied this a thousand times, mm-hmm. and now we have no idea what's true or what's not. They might have snuck in there, like, oh, and Jesus is God too, you know. So <laughs> it, with that, like, how can we trust it? And we could say, no, there is there is more evidence for the New Testament than any other ancient text. So the amount of text, the, the way we can study it, the accuracy that we have, it's right. unlike anything else. And none of that yeah. affects the, the major doctrines of the faith. Right. No. So that's all. That should give us more confidence. Now, what are the reasons that I would have for saying this shouldn't be included? Why would I say the ending? Again, that's verses 9 to 20 in the last chapter there. Why would I say that that should not be included in the gospel of Mark? Well, the first reason, like I said, was textual. So the most important manuscripts and early manuscripts don't include this section. So mm-hmm. that says a lot. Right. It says a lot. So the manuscript evidence is pretty heavy. And there are also two other potential endings for the book. So this is not the only false ending. And so that makes us question whether this is original or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say that for a second. So, so manuscript evidence is one. Historical evidence is another. The church fathers expressed that the longer ending wasn't original to mm-hmm. the Gospel of Mark. So there's a lot, there's discussion about this, and it, they seem to indicate that this is not original. Mm-hmm. So that... That's a that's pretty big. Right. There's also theological problems here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you could uh, you could interpret this in different ways, but it does say, I mean, listen to what he says. He says, verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So you could understand that to be him saying certain people who believe in my name will do these things, which is absolutely true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all those things, well, I don't know about drinking poison that I've heard of in, in the Bible, but all those things happen, you know, in the, the New Testament. But it, it sounds like he, what he's saying is anyone who is a Christian will practice these things. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's a believer, this will be kind of a, a constant normal thing. Mm-hmm. Nowhere else in Scripture do we get indication that those things are going to be normal. Right. In fact, we actually get an indication of the opposite, that those are abnormal and they occur in certain uh, epics in human history, mm-hmm. that the apostles had this unique ability that we shouldn't expect to have. So that is a theological issue that is strange. Mm-hmm. So to see something like that in, an, in a place like this makes you question whether this is actually original. Right. And then also there's grammatical issues. This may seem to you like the, why is that important at all? But the grammar and the vocabulary of the of most New Testament writers are consistent. Mm-hmm. So we can see patterns in how they write, what words they use. So it's very strange that at the end of Mark's gospel, a bunch of words, a bunch of vocab words are introduced that he never uses. Mm-hmm. That's like very strange. Lots of uh, red flags going off. Also, the just the the grammatical flow mm-hmm. of verse eight to verse nine doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. So they, it speaks to in verse nine, it speaks to he. Okay. So who is he? Well, he is a, is a, you know, a pronoun that refers back to some previous noun, right? So it has to have an antecedent, which is the noun that comes before it and identifies who that is. Right. As we read on, we can say that's Jesus, but Jesus wasn't mentioned in immediate, like immediately before this, right? So the immediate, you know, preceding people identified are the women who are who are going to the tomb. So it's very strange that all the preceding antecedents are are the women, and right. then all of a sudden it just mentions he, as if we should know who that is, right? So that weird grammar indicates that there's this probably doesn't connect mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons, but I, I, for that reason. Uh, for those reasons, I'm out. Yeah, you know, I'm out. Sense. I'm out of the, this <laughs> this long ending. Uh, I think it ends at verse eight. So okay. feel free to comment, call us heretics. Uh, we would love that. Be good stuff. Yeah, for this we would like that. Yeah. For this, yeah. yeah, the Bible is Bible is reliable, and um, and the reliability is shown in that we can actually distinguish specific things mm-hmm. whether they should be in there. And actually, your Bible will indicate this often. If you have a Bible like mine, it might italicize something that is questionable or that's put in there as a way to smooth out their translation. Mm-hmm. Right. So they want you to know exactly what is in the scripture and what is not. Right. No one wants to hide like the, the, the translators and the editors, they want to make really clear what you can trust and what is you, what you should question. Your footnotes are going to be full of, you know, if it's important, it'll say that word may not be in the original text. Right. So, but we can identify, we can so identify and pinpoint those issues that there will be a marker if you have a good Bible every time something is doubtful. Right. Which is not very often. So, yeah. Awesome. Relatively speaking. Cool. Well, you want to get in the text? Yeah, let's get into it. Let's have, let's have some fun here. So, chapter 13 is where we left off. We're in the Passion Week. 
and we see here um, the the Olivet Discourse, which I don't. We're not going to go into much detail. We went into this in more length in the Gospel of Matthew, but uh, but we see Jesus call explain to them what's going to happen in the preceding years and speaking to things that are probably at the end of the age, and he's calling them to live and act in a way now. Mm-hmm that aligns with that. So to sort of do something different, to be a faithful follower of Jesus now because these things are imminent, because right. judgment will come in the near term and in the long term. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for us to know that as well that these things call us to live differently. These truths are so important for us. Mm-hmm. In chapter 14, we see this plot to kill Jesus. Right? So the the leaders began to plot against Jesus. Mm-hmm. We see Jesus anointed so we see this kind of contrast. It's kind of sandwiched in between the plot to kill Jesus. So we see the, the leaders plotting against him in verses 1 and 2, and then Judas in verses 10 and 11, and in between a woman who gives a sacrificial gift. Mm-hmm. Right? She pours out this flask for Jesus, her most precious possession, to anoint him for his burial. But Judas is taking the side of the authorities. So it raises that question we asked last week, which is, Will Jesus' disciples become his enemies? Right. Are they going to remain faithful? Right. If Judas is betraying them, then is everyone going to betray, mm. betray Jesus? So this isn't, this isn't looking good at this point. Mm-hmm. Now we see the, the Passover feast, and there's a few things that I think are important with this. We don't see as much detail with the Passover feast as we do in other Gospels, uh, especially the, the Gospel of John. It goes into great length about the Passover but the, this Passover, one interesting thing about it is how Jesus speaks of his own sacrifice. And again, we've seen that Jesus is the servant, the picture of the servant in the Gospel of Mark. So he is doing these actions, very action-focused on what he's doing, the, the, the labor that he has. He's sacrificing for others. His own speech uh, in 1045 of how the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Mm-hmm. All of that is focusing on his servanthood. And that connects to Isaiah 53 and the servant who's going to lay down his life as right. a sacrificial offering. In Mark 14, 24, as Jesus is giving them the cup in the, the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Hmm. That mention of many there, a lot, of, a lot of people have pointed out, that seems to connect to Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. It also connects to... Mark chapter 10, which I just read, right? Mm-hmm. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, many. So the sacrifice of Jesus in both of those verses is for many. And that goes directly to Isaiah 53, where it says, Out of the anguish, Isaiah 53, 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He shall divide, oh sorry, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors, that he bore the sin of many hmm. and makes intercession for the transgressors. So all those mentions of many right. seem to be in light when when uh, Mark is mentioning this these words of Jesus, hmm. that he is that servant who will save the many yeah. Amen. by his sacrifice. So Jesus then foretells Peter's denials. Um, so not only is Judas betraying Jesus, but all of them are going to be scattered. Right? Mm-hmm. He says in chapter 14, verse 27, 
you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So that's not encouraging. And then not only that, but Peter himself will deny Jesus three times. So again, we're asking the question of what's going to happen with the disciples? Yeah, it's, it is somewhat humorous. Like if this was the first gospel written and this is the first letter about God, Jesus's <laughs> life being circulated and this is what you're learning about the disciples, you're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, not great, not great. <laughs> And we can, again, we can put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, especially yeah. as they are with Jesus in the garden in the next section, and they're praying with him. He's he's praying, he's laboring hard, and they keep falling asleep. Right. And this, this statement, I mean, who, who can't identify with this? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mm-hmm. So the, the disciples are those who are willing at some level, but they're weak. And so are we, right? So... We see them failing in Jesus' moment of greatest need, abandoning him later, denying him, just basically being terrible people Mm -hmm. when Jesus needed them to be there for him. And yet (laughs) Jesus is going to restore them. He's going to be gentle with them, all of that. So there is is absolutely hope here. But as a reader, you're asking the question of what's what's happening. Right. That discipleship theme is so is being clarified. Now in his arrests. We see, again, in the trials, we see the identity of Jesus mm-hmm. being brought forth. Yeah. And so the key questions, there's kind of back and forth with uh, accusations against Jesus. Verse 56 says, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they're c- contradicting each other. Mm-hmm. They're not like in this very you know important court case. They don't even have consistency on what they're accusing Jesus of. Right. And yet the, the verdict is going to come anyway. And the way it comes is by Jesus revealing his identity. Mm-hmm. That's the key. So the, the high priest asks in verse 61, it says, he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Wow. Huge question, right? right. Who is Jesus? That theme is there. And then also the son of God. Mm-hmm. So, the son of God question is very clearly asked of him. Right. So will Jesus affirm what Mark said in in chapter 1, verse 1? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Will Jesus confirm what the Father said in uh, 1.10, I believe it was, Mm -hmm. right? This Or 1.11, this is my beloved Son. Will he confirm what we saw in chapter Mm 9? This is my beloved Son, the words of the Father. And here he responds with verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So... uh, Amazing. So he can confirms that he reveals his identity and we can see why he didn't want to reveal his identity because their immediate response is kill him. Right? <laughs> so it makes sense that he wasn't just going out there saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I'm divine. Yeah. Worship me because he wouldn't have had the time to do the ministry among the people. So right. we see that messianic secret as well, why it was so important. But this identity question is, is asked. It's revealed who he is because he is the son of God. That's why he will die. And, uh, and so we see again how important that theme is in the book. In chapter 15, we, we see the, the sentencing from Pilate, the crucifixion, the death, all of that. And then again, the identity of Jesus is brought into relief at a key moment. Mm-hmm. And maybe really the, the climax of the book is in chapter 15, um, verse 39. Because what happens is Jesus dies as he cries out to God. 
right? The words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathes his last and he dies. In verse 38, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mm. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Mm. So there you go. So the son of God, again, kind of brings the book full circle, right? So now you have a Gentile, not only a Gentile, but a person who was part of the Roman authority. Yeah. Right? Verse, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, we said that that would have been a, sh- a shocking thing to hear in the Greek world, in the Roman world. And now you have a Roman who knows that he's supposed to worship Caesar as the son of God. He's supposed to proclaim the gospel of Caesar's victories. Mm-hmm. And yet now he is identifying that the true son of God is in front of him mm-hmm. a, and, a, and is dead. Right. I mean, amazing, amazing statement that shows us who Jesus is so clearly as the book is coming to an end. Yeah. He is the son of God. His identity is clear. No one could doubt it. So from beginning to end, we see that that message of Jesus' identity as God's son is being proclaimed. Mm. It's really beautiful how, yeah. it, how it's brought together like that. And then chapter 16, we see the resurrection of Jesus. And um, we don't have a huge resurrection account here. In fact, look at how, look at how it ends so the women come to the, the tomb, they see it empty, they see the angel, and he says, verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going with you, or going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. <laughs> so why does the book end that way? That's the end. Yeah. So if, if what we're saying is true, which I believe it is, that the, the ending from verses 9 to 20 is not original, that is the ending of the book. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Does that fit? Well, I think it fits in terms of Mark's style. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just like jumps in. He doesn't start with a, a prologue like John does about the eternal Son of God. He doesn't... Right start with Jesus's uh, genealogy or with his birth accounts. He gets into the action. He's focused on who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. Mm-hmm. And he ends with people appearing at his resurrection, being terrified, disciples of his being terrified, being scared, being given a command, and then being disobedient about it because they're scared. Yep. To me, I, I think it's just a really powerful ending. I think... I think what what he's doing here is he's he's showing he's kind of leaving us hanging with how are the disciples going to respond mm-hmm. the disciples that just failed that were so messed up how are they going to respond to the message of Jesus and really he's focusing it in on us as the readers to say how are we going to respond mm-hmm. what are we going to do with the message of Jesus with this command to be his disciple to follow him it calls for us to to respond and to respond well. Yeah. So I, I like it. And there's a lot of reasons to be afraid and a lot of reasons to not follow Jesus as we should. But God is calling us to be faithful and yeah. to be disciples of him. And who else can we go to? He is the son of God. Right. So I, I don't know. I love that. The gospel of action is calling us at the end to action. And so we see the theme of identity of Jesus, the identity of discipleship, mm-hmm. um, the, the servanthood and the son of God metaphors all coming together to 
to, to lay on us a burden. Yeah. Amen. So that's the question we should be asking, right? As we've been asking all along, who is Jesus? Uh, what are we going to do in response to him? How are we going to follow him? Yeah. And did, I don't know. I'm sure you can think right now as you're listening to this, what's an area of your life where you've been like resisting discipleship or even resisting mm. full commitment to Jesus? Is there an area where that where God is calling you to lay down your own uh, prerogatives, your own you know preferences to, in order to serve someone else in order to follow him fully? Mm-hmm. Is there an area of sin where you, you're keeping hidden because you're comfortable with it? You don't want to do the hard work of, of confessing and repenting or is there someone that you should be loving and serving that you're not? Um, this is a good time as we finish the gospel of Mark to ask that question and to, to seek the truth from God and yeah. to respond and to be obedient to him as a disciple. Yeah. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for daily gospel. That concludes the gospel of Mark and next week we'll start the gospel of Luke. That's right. Yeah. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us.